gentlemen welcome back to another scalora dance for episode with us today for the first time on an official scalora dance for interview we have a co-host anna najarian anna how are you feeling today i am feeling super excited mostly because of the interview we are interviewing today so excited i've been waiting for this oh wait. ever since alessandro told me who we were interviewing i was like oh my gosh yes Yes, yes, yes. So tell me, it is quite early, actually. Well, early. It's afternoon here in the States. What are you doing this morning? Anything productive? Let's see. This morning, I went to school. So I have half a schedule. So I get out at around 11. So I come home and I got ready for the interview. And here we are. And I got ready to have my Calvin Klein today. Very classy. So what do you say we start with an introduction? All right. So today, our interview has the resume. Now, she was uh, two times GOC professional champion. She was also the 1997 European professional champion, the UK professional champion, international. Guys, this list is very, very long. She has quite the resume. The international professional champion, two times world professional champion, as well as being the British Open professional champion. Not, not only does she have titles, she was also awarded the Prince Mikasa Award, excuse me if I'm pronouncing this one wrong, the BDF Award, and the Carl Ann Award. Now, not only is she involved in the competitive world of the dance industry, she's also involved in the TV world of the dance industry. She is an adjudicator on the Irish rendition of Dancing with the Stars. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about the one and only, Madam Lorraine Berry. Lullaby of the I'm breezing along, along with the breeze. I'm hearing a song, a song through the trees. Hello, hello. How are you today? Hello. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How's your day? Very good, thank you. And I was looking forward to this opportunity to have a lovely conversation. Of course. Now I have to start with our with our first question, our traditional question that I get made fun of all the time. So I have to ask you, how's the weather in Ireland today? Actually, we had a lovely sunny day. Normally it rains a lot in Ireland, yeah. but today it's a beautiful day, and I think that's a good sign of our lovely interview together. Of course, must be. We have a beautiful day here in in Atlanta as well. So it's the stars have been aligned. Yes. So here in Atlanta has been getting a lot warmer, so I'm very excited about that. It's true. Summertime, time to get into the summer body, the professional dancer body. Time to do it. <laughs> Let's take it from the very beginning, ma'am. Let's talk about how you begin dancing. Tell me, how did this start? I started to dance at the age of six, and I was going to the local shops with my mother on a Saturday morning with my sister at the time, an older sister of two years. And we saw an advert for dancing, ballroom dancing. New studio was going to be opening in the area. And they had a trial class on that day. And my mother just said to my sister and I, would you, would you like to go? And we immediately said yes, because we didn't want to go and do the shopping. So we thought, yes, let's go off and have some fun. And we went dancing. And that was the day I fell in love with dancing. And I couldn't wait for every Saturday morning to come so I could go to my dance classes. So 
So it was 52 years ago. I see. Now, was this, did you start in the, in the say, solo proficiency or what kind of dancing, like polka, cha-cha-cha, ballet? I started doing ballroom dancing and under the umbrella of the ballroom dancing was the Latin American section, five dances, the modern section, which is five dances, waltz, tango, foxtrot, quickstep, v-knees, and also old-time sequence dancing, which I don't think you are familiar with. This one, not so much. So old-time sequence dancing is where you dance figures that are eight bars long, and then you repeat them again. So you end up repeating them eight times because the music would play four-bar introduction and 64 bars of music. So eight times eight is 64, and you would dance it in a circular motion around the floor anti-clockwise, and the adjudicators would stand in the middle of the floor and adjudicate that competition. I see. Now, quickly, Anna, before you ask your question, you, you mentioned something. I like to go sometimes off script. And, you know, one of the things that my coaches yell about me is improvising. But I'm going to do it quickly. Now, you mentioned uh, four bar intro. You mentioned a little bit about the musicality. So I'm going to go a little bit off script. But I wanted to ask you how crucial in today's world is the musical phrasing and the dancing. So sometimes we hear a lot of modern pop music, modern music, disco dancing. What would you say is, is appropriate music in the dance floor world? Would it be Ross Mitchell, Empress Orchestra? What are your thoughts here quickly? I think that music today in the dancing world, mm -hmm. it, it has variants, it has variations. Uh, you can go to obviously the biggest festival in the world, uh, Blackpool Dance Festival, and you have of course, the Blackpool Dance Festival Orchestra, and it's very, very traditional music, although lately he has been changing the music and bringing in some different music. But everything is created through the balance of a, a bar of music. So you can have that strong bar of music balanced with a weaker bar. So everything for me about phrasing is related to two bars of music. I see. Thank you. Yes. One of the one of the things that Anne and I, especially in the club here in Atlanta, is we like to train to music that is appropriate music with the correct musical phrasing, with the correct musical structure. Uh, this way, our kids can uh, emphasize all the right music. So when we hear, like, for example, Billie Eilish in a waltz, we're a little bit. What? <laughs> so anyways, that was my interruption. It's different. My it's different. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that um, nothing is constant except change. So to have um, a different piece of music every so often is a good thing. So I wouldn't be against it. It's when it becomes too often in that direction, then it's not a good thing. So everything is always about balancing. A good balance. I see. Okay. Well, Anna, thank you for this improvisation. Go ahead. You're welcome. Okay, so the next question I wanted to ask is what was your childhood like? So either like life outside of dancing, like kind of where you grew up, what was your environment like? Who who were like the most important influencers in your life in your childhood? I was born in Dublin, Ireland. Mm -hmm. So I am Irish originally. And uh, as I said, at the age of six, I fell in love with ballroom dancing. So you had to tie that in very much with school. So my mm -hmm. family were very supportive. The whole family were very supportive because not only did I dance, but my older sister danced. And then my younger sister, Michelle, 
um, arrived into our family. And at the age of three, she started dancing. Mm -hmm. So it was very much a beautiful family affair. We would all go to dance competitions at the weekend. My mother was also a dressmaker. Mm -hmm. So she would make my dance dresses, my sister's dance dresses, and of course, help other people making dresses as well. So I had a beautiful childhood um, with lots of family fun, uh, lots of family gathering of going to competitions. And then if and when I was successful, we would also have a bigger family mm -hmm. party to celebrate that great success. So I feel I've had a, a beautiful childhood. Right, very nice. That that's actually sounds a lot like my family because I'm Armenian. Uh, Eastern European and so my family we get together we do so many gatherings large gatherings big parties and it's a very cultural thing and I've always like been growing up with it so to me like the fam the importance of like family and culture is huge I think any career like any development of any kind of career but in dancing especially it's very important I think I agree with you I feel family is first Mm -hmm. And even in the dancing, you form a family bond in yes. dancing as well. So you have your blood family and you also mm -hmm. have your your where, where you are most of the time, which is the passion forum dancing. And you have that lovely ballroom family. And again, it's finding the balance, isn't it? It's that time mm -hmm. to, um, to give to both. Right. right. Now, I'm from, from Italy, more specifically Sicily. So you can imagine um, family. If, you, we, if we don't have a lunch or we skip lunch, the rest of the family gets offended. So... <laughs> <laughs> so moving on a little bit from your younger years, let's discuss a little bit your under 21 years. Now, as a young dancer within this specific time frame, what were your goals then? What was uh, what were your intentions? What was your plan moving forward within 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21? So I was dancing in Ireland up until the age of 16, going towards 17. And you mentioned dancing with the stars, and that's what you know. But the actual original format was called Come Dancing. So Come Dancing was organized by the BBC here in the, in the UK. And I was then asked to represent Northern Ireland in the Come Dancing at the age of 16 because they didn't have enough dancers. So I was lucky enough to go with my Irish partner. And that's where I met Mr. Andrew Sinkinson. Oh, wow. Uh, he was dancing for the northwest of England. I was dancing for Northern Ireland in different categories. But Andrew and I uh, were attracted to each other. We then started writing to each other. And at the age of 17, Andrew then very kindly asked me to dance with him, to be his dance partner. Uh, I was quite excited about that. I obviously had to get the approval from my parents because to leave home at 17, is very young, especially when you're a close-knit family. But I knew I had this burning passion inside of me for dancing. So I begged my parents. I said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I had to finish school. I had to do a secretarial course. My father wanted me to do that. I did it. I passed. I put everything into it. And at the age of 17, my parents allowed me to go to live with Andrew and his family. And that was important. There had to be a family. I, yes. I went from Ireland over to a place called Southport, which is very close to Blackpool in the north of England. And then Andrew and I started dancing together. And within two years, we were quite successful. We won the British Under-21 Youth 
Forum Championships in Blackpool. And the goal was always to, to, to put everything into your dancing, to dedicate yourself mm -hmm. to your dancing, to become the best. Because when you become the best, the best will win. Mm -hmm. You have to have that belief. And I've always carried that belief and I still carry it today. I see. Fantastic. I, I agree 100%. So at 17 years old, what, what was that like moving from emotionally inside, mentally as well? Was there a crazy difference in the lifestyle? Obviously, it was exciting. Of course. But then you've got, on the other hand, you've got it where you miss your family. So again, it's always, it's that balance. But of course, there is a good thing called the telephone. Now, there was no video telephone in, that, in those days. But we had a telephone. So, of course, I was constantly in touch with my parents on special occasions, as in Christmas, birthdays. We would meet up. My parents would come to England to see me. But how did I feel? I felt that I felt very excited by the world of ballroom dancing that I had my eyes had been opened to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the competitions were also taking place in London. So I had this burning passion inside of me that I, I'm in the north of England, I've got to get down to London. So at the age of 18, going on 19, I said to Andrew, we have to move. We have got to get to London. That's where it's all happening. And Andrew was a little bit reluctant in the beginning because the comfort of home is wonderful. And when you go down to London, it's rented accommodation. And also, if I may say, in those early years, we were in the 80s. And in those years, as an amateur, you were not allowed to teach. Oh, that's you right. not allowed to earn money. So we then would do as many competitions as we could in the world. Mm -hmm. And in the world, it was also meaning going to East Germany. So you might have heard of Checkpoint Charlie. Well, and I went through Checkpoint Charlie quite a lot because there were some fantastic competitions in East Germany, in Germany. Um, the whole of that Eastern Bloc had some wonderful competitions. And in them, you would win prizes as in a TV, uh, a piece of jewelry, uh, a fur coat. Mm. And then we would get back to London. And obviously, we would give them to our parents because they supported us so much. And I'd like to say, you know, quite clearly, Andrew's parents were especially very, very kind to us both. And uh, so whatever they would want, we would give them. And then the rest of it, we would try and sell in order to get some money to continue dancing, to pay the rent, to pay the dance lesson, to pay for practice. Because we really were devoted to educating ourselves as much as possible and to becoming the best because we believed that the best would win. That's very interesting. So it seems like from a from a young age, you kind of had like you knew very surely what direction you wanted to go, and you yeah. kind of fell in love from the start. I did, uh, and that passion is still burning in me today. Mm -hmm. And and things have changed and changed, you know, quite dramatically. But that passion of dancing, especially when you put on a piece of music for me, then that's it. I'm sold. I'm I'm gone. I'm just into that world, and I love it. I. I live it, I breathe it, I smell it, it's everything I love, yes. That's a very beautiful thing. Now, going to the next question, I you briefly mentioned this about telephones back in the day, and I would like to know, um, 
obviously now, like in today's generation, there's a difference of, there's a lot more technology, right? Like you can go on YouTube and yes. find videos of any, possibly any dancer you want, like, and you look up to, and you can find videos of them dancing, right? And, and um, you look up to them and you kind of learn from them, from exposure, right? Because like, the more you watch something, the more you are like immersed in it, the more, the more you learn. Um, yes. in addition to taking lessons and so I want to know growing up as a young dancer who uh, who did you look up to because I know like back then obviously there wasn't technology so there wasn't the same kind of like availability of information I would say there is now so how who did you look up to as a dancer and who like I looked up to very much the professionals um, mm -hmm. you know at that time you had my teachers were Bill and Bobby Irvine and um, Richard and Janet Gleave, who were also still dancing, as in demonstrations, not competitions. Um, Kenny and Marion Welch, Hans and Anne Laxholm, Stephen Hillier, Lindsay Hillier. Um, there were tremendous dancers, professional dancers. And of course, I was there at those competitions as an amateur. So I would stay. It was an education. It was what your teachers encouraged you to do was to stay and watch those competitions and watch those dancers. And, you know, I learned so much from watching them and not just on the floor, but their beautiful etiquette off the floor as well. Mm -hmm. How they held themselves, how you, know, you can see a couple from a distance and how they speak to each other. Mm -hmm. um, I think all of that was a, a tremendous education to me. So, Yes, we didn't have the videos. There were some old films that Bill mm -hmm. and Bob Irvine would show us of Len Scrivener and older dancers and that. So we would look at that and like be like, wow, yeah. amazing skill. The dancing has always been very, very beautiful. I think that the years before, the years that I was involved and the years now, we've carried on that beautiful tradition. But of course, we've had some changes. Some mm -hmm. good and some maybe not so good. Mm -hmm. Right, I agree. That's definitely a beautiful thing. And I think change is inevitable, but it's like it's definitely something that helps us grow and, and mature as people. Yes. Yeah, and also there was the television. So the likes of Sid Charisse, uh, Gene mm -hmm. Kelly, Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire, looking at those movies and how they made it look so easy so effortless so seamless but there was a learning curve inside of that as well and a tango argentine uh, when we were in london we would try to get that opportunity to go and see a live show because again mm -hmm. the music is incredible when you have live music and then watching someone live on stage especially dancing in great big stiletto heels right. it's um, very very inspirational yeah that's a beautiful thing now, at the, once you arrive at the peak of your competitive career in the professionals, let's discuss a little bit day to day. What was a day in your life? What did it look like? Uh, a day in my life, I was very lucky because earlier you met my sister. So my sister, Michelle Barry, is also a former rising star British champion. She won the ballroom on a Monday evening and I won the professional ballroom on a Friday evening. So you can imagine in the year 2001, our parents were so proud. They had Super excited. Yeah. How big was the party then? It was very big, very <laughs> big. And my sister, I'll never forget, she got the most beautiful trophy, the Rising Star 
Forum Trophy in Blackpool is absolutely stunningly beautiful. So to have two trophies in that week was really special. Mm-hmm. But when I, the first of all, I turned professional in 1989 because in the amateur career, I was also a three times British champion, amateur, a three to, a two times world champion, and obviously the youth. And that was my career with Andrew Sinkinson, which was really, really successful. And then in 89, we turned professional. And my daily life then, it became difficult because you start to do a little bit of teaching. Then you're wanted to do demonstrations. And you are creating your demonstration show and you're maintaining your dancing. So housework became more difficult. Office work became more difficult. You know, you were writing letters, fax came in. Um, So my sister, Michelle, actually um, came to work for me. And she was an amateur at the time. So it worked very well for her that I could support her. She had paid back by supporting me. So we've always worked very, very closely. So basically it would be a perfect day for me would be get up in the morning and go for my dance lesson with Richard and Janet Lee or Bill and Bobby Irvine. After that, it would be lunch, perhaps another lesson or go to the studio and practice what we had just been taught. And then it was go home, eat something. So my sister would have, you know, she'd already tidied the house for us. She would prepare a meal for us. And then we would go home and we would relax, eat something, and then get ready for the evening practice. So the evening practice is public practice. And we really, really enjoyed that. And uh, that was the one thing that I'm happy to say that in my whole career as a dancer with the two partners I danced with, Practice was very important, and I got that in, I would say, on average, five days a week. It could be six, just depending, but it was always about five days a week. And not only that evening practice with everybody, which I thought is, I, I, I still think it's very, very important that you dance with others because you do in a competition. Mm-hmm. But also that private practice where you can have that conversation with each other and go through the details of what it is you truly want to master. Sure, of course. Uh, discussing a little bit the evening practices, one has to manage, of course, floor craft, has to manage uh, also uh, socializing, uh, but also that sense of pride when you feel like you, you do the practice earlier, then you practice what you learn, and then you master it, and then you can kind of present it in front of everyone. It's, it's, it's a good feeling to have. Yeah, and it's exciting, and there are a lot of dancers there, and if you are successful and you... Uh, you know, people like your dancing, they tend to watch you. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to have people watching. Who doesn't like adulation? Everybody mm-hmm. does. So that was always very nice. But I think, again, everything is about a balance and it's about giving that adulation and that lovely respect back to other people as well. But pr- public practice, I think that the art of forecraft, we don't see it as much as we did in those days. I think the art of forecraft is very important and I encourage it very much today. Right, so moving on to stemming off from the early childhood into uh, youth into under 21, um, what was the biggest sacrifice you made for your career? I know you mentioned you were very family oriented and the family was very supportive and you were in turn supportive of the family. Um, Would you say that like moving maybe was the biggest sacrifice or was there something else? Uh, I think moving was definitely a sacrifice. I think the biggest sacrifice was giving everything to dancing 
giving everything to dancing, you know, wanting it so much to work. It was devoting yourself to dancing, really. Mm-hmm. So there were times that, that I didn't get to celebrate certain occasions. There were times that, you know, I was traveling so much that I didn't, I didn't have time to see the trees growing or to, yeah. you know, or to see a newborn in the family, things like that. So I think that, you know, the biggest sacrifice I made was my time. Mm-hmm. But then the reward I got was so great. So I don't have any regrets about it. And I wouldn't change it because I enjoyed everything I did. Truly, truly enjoyed it. And for me, I'm the lucky one because it paid off. Yeah. But you have to put the work in. And I think that a lot of people, the expectation is very high today. They're all expecting it. Mm-hmm. They feel, you know, they have the right to have it without yeah. putting the work in. I know I definitely put the work in. So I, I gave a lot of my time. That was my biggest sacrifice. Yeah, I agree. I think most, some dancers today, they kind of want to do both. They want to train and, and be a competitive dancer. And they kind of still want their old life, right? The like comfort of, you know, being able to see your family, going to events, going to like the things a normal person would do. Party. But, yeah. Competitions <laughs> have parties. <laughs> right, right, but then like it sometimes it gets in the way of the dance, like the mentality of the like dancer too, and so yes, yes, yeah. it does. It's nice to be able to like have specifically like like a very career oriented kind of pathway, and to know that whatever you're doing is for your future and for your development. And again, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it all through this interview. Balance is very important. Right. So for me. Uh, you know, I did dance five, sometimes six mm-hmm. days a week, but you have to have a day off. And mm-hmm. a day off is when you wake up and you say, what will I do today? What shall mm-hmm. I do today? Shall mm-hmm. I just play my pajamas today? It mm-hmm. has to be a day that you choose. Or shall I just go for a walk in the park and see the trees and see the flowers? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, go and see an old friend or an aunt or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it's all about finding that right balance. Right. I would love to get just a little bit psychological uh, for just a second. One of the things that intrigued me, and I have no clue why, so please don't ask me why, (laughs) is when a competitor has to go through the deciding point of how and when to retire. So if you could walk me through a little bit mentally, what was it like? What questions did you ask yourself? Is it time to retire? How do I retire? What's it like? Well, in my situation, I had been in the final for many years because when I turned professional in 1989, I went directly into the professional final. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go into a 24 semifinal. Right. So again, I was very, I want, I, I can say lucky, but it's lucky because you put the work in. It's been there at the right time in the right place. So uh, Andrew and I went directly into the final. Um, and so I've been in the final for many, many years. I danced, you know, for many years against John Wood and Anne Lewis at the time, Marx and Karen Hilton. So I sat in second position for, I think, around about six years. So when you eventually win, which I did in 99, 2000, and 2001, the Blackpool, you feel, especially three, the number three is, hmm, done it three times now. Um, yeah. Does it, you know, does it get better? 
Mm-hmm. No, the first one is the best. When you win for the first time, it's like that wow. feeling. I finally did it. That adulation. It's like, wow, what a great reward. And then after that, of course, the pressure is on because when you're at the top, there's nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So that's a good pressure to have, but it's also a reality check that, okay, I win it a second time. And then you win it a third time. And so you, where do you go from then? From there. So after the three years of winning the Blackpool Open, it, I, I actually wanted to, to retire before that. I was ready to retire. Yes, I was ready to retire in 1999 when we had won everything in one year. So from January of 99, the UK Dance Championships, all the way to December the 10th, which happens to be my birthday, which was the World Championship in Germany. And we won everything that year. And I was ready to retire then, but my partner wasn't. So then Uh, you also have to balance that and say, okay, well, I'm ready. You're not ready. What do we do about it? And so there is compromise. And so therefore, there was definitely a compromise from my side. And then you get back on that train, and it's a full speed ahead. And um, then after the third year, really, that's when we both then sort of feel that, okay, it's time now. I didn't want to retire in Italy. That was the only thing that I, you know, didn't like. I didn't like that. I wanted to retire in Blackpool. But unfortunately, my partner didn't want to do that. So, uh, yeah, I'm a very kind person. <laughs> I can see, madam. No, of course, I have to agree with you. Retiring in, in the Blackpool, uh, I, I, I would have to take your, your side, madam. That, that's quite the, 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 the what's, Anna, what is brividi? Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Well, it's the start of dancing. You can, you know, when I remember when East Germany, the wall came down, the TV cameras were there and they met the first couple over the wall and they happened to be dancers and they said, the wall is down. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? And they said, Blackpool. Wow. Yeah. And that just goes to show you that Blackpool has the most beautiful ballroom. It is the gorgeous ballroom, and it is that whole family of ballroom dancing. It has history in the walls, and the music is sensational. It's just a fantastic festival. And to win it there and retire there, was certainly a dream that I had and sadly it didn't come through but I never allow something like that to tarnish what I had I, I always look back at the good times mm-hmm. I see I agree I, li- I like that that mentality you know even though we didn't we didn't get exactly it but you still managed to pull off quite the even after your competitive career your adjudicating career your career your life after that was is still very very impressive which you add it all together sitting in second place for six years and then winning for three that's nine years of top Mm -hmm. so it's a long time and uh you hear the phrase of blood sweat and tears and that's what goes into it but as i said i wouldn't change it because i loved it i loved every minute of it Mm -hmm. i'm very grateful for it too Right. So uh, transitioning from this question into a little bit more deeper inside like life outs uh, uh, after the competitive life, um, as you began your career after competitive life, what how did your goals like necessarily change? Right. Um, what did you feel like mentally you, you wanted to do with your life? Give back. Give back. Give back. 
absolutely. I had so much. It's all about giving back. It's all about um, guiding couples, learning from perhaps some small mistakes that I had made, um, you know, mm. knowledge, giving knowledge, education, mm. uh, give back, be kind, um, you know, just, just help people, help people on the journey. I had my journey. It was so successful. I loved it. And uh, it's just helping and by giving back uh, through, you know, time, knowledge. Uh, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I still do it today. Yes, discussing yeah. the giving back, right? So what is one of the biggest traits that you appreciate from your students? And the second part of this question would be, what is the biggest trait that you appreciated from your teachers? Well, what I love from my students is I love the trust. I love the trust that they will trust me. Mm -hmm. And not just trust me with the information that I give them, but trust me that they can tell me how they feel, mm-hmm. how they want to do it, what their fears may be. That, that, I think, is very important, to have that gorgeous relationship with each other, that they trust me and I trust them. And, uh, and, I, and I really do work very, very clearly on that, is to have trust with my students. And... I had that with my teachers. So I had a tremendous respect for my teachers. I would arrive on time always. Mm. I would look like a shining pin, make sure my shoes were clean. Um, I think the only thing that I felt when I was growing up, I didn't perhaps talk truly of how I felt because perhaps I wasn't encouraged to by my teachers. Mm. They were the teachers and I saw it as, you know, they were there and I was down here. And with my students, I like to get it here. I mm-hmm. like it where we can talk to each other, converse with each other, and uh, form a bond, a lovely trust with each other. Right. I, I think that's that's definitely uh, an interesting aspect because for me, I, I know that, like, I, I think I would learn better. Of course, when you have, like, older like teachers who have so much more experience you than you it's easier to get intimidated right by them and sometimes if it feels like the the communication is one way right like they're they're the teacher they're giving you the information but it's nice to kind of have some teachers that kind of like level the difference between and like don't make it seem so scary so that's the intimidation oh imagine like And I don't think it would be intentional. I don't think that my teachers intended to be intimidating. No, I think it was, again, just that gorgeous respect that we Mm -hmm. had. And so I think that was something that I learned from them, that when that day comes where I'm going to be in that position of teaching, I didn't want to have that gap. I wanted to get it where we could just communicate on the same level. I think... You know, there's only one mouth and there are two ears. And I think listening is very, very important. And a lot of people try to do a lot of talking. So, you know, listening is very, very important. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so moving on to the next question. I'm looking forward to the answer of this question. Okay. <laughs> moving forward from all the like psychological questions. Uh, there are many different explanations, but we must know. What is the correct timing of a foxtrot feather step? There's so many explanations. Please give give us a guide that we just follow and just well, done. 
<laughs> well, I would say, you know, that the, the, the most basic one, uh, the one that is renowned here, is, of course, slow, quick, quick. That is it. So you have three steps. You have four beats. You want to show that gorgeous clarity of movement of a slow, which tends to have a slightly longer step. Then you want to show the clarity of the quick, which is one beat, which is a shorter step. And then you want the clarity of the third step, which is a beautiful ending position of CBMP. And uh, that's what I, I, I love is that lovely clarity. But that doesn't mean to say I am restricted to it. It means that, again, as an artist, you have to open up and experiment. But I think we have a history of dancing. and We have guidelines from the technique book. And that technique book does guide us to dance slow, quick, quick, and show that lovely, uh, smooth action with great clarity of a lovely slow, long, a lovely shortening of a quick, and then that gorgeous end positioning of a CBMP. But uh, you can change it. You know, musically, we all hear things differently. We feel things differently. So as long as it, when I would look at it, it has to look right. It has to sound right. The measure has to be there. Clarity is very important, especially in a competition, because as an adjudicator, you have a very short time to adjudicate. So sometimes something that can be over artistic can look slightly questionable. And you've no time then to sort of question oh hold on what, what is that well hold on what, did I get that right was that was that was that slightly off time was that delayed um and so I think you have to be very aware of that so would you agree that maybe this artistic license maybe should only be given to like top 12 couples in the world and everybody else for, for now just work the basics mm. and maybe top 12 can experiment everything has a time and a place doesn't it I think that when you are can we use the you know, term growing, when you're growing and developing, I think you definitely want to stick to the basics and make that as clear as possible. So I would always encourage people from the bottom up to that 24, make it clear, no doubt, go out there. It needs to be really clear and very much clear of what it is that you want to do. It's not what I want to do. My day's over. It's all about the couple. I want to know how do you want to do it? You know, and then they'll say, okay, well, I want to do quick, quick, slow. Okay, so you're saying that, but the music is playing, and I need to be able to see it for what my ear is saying, perhaps slow, quick, quick. So visually, it's the clarity that's very, very important. We, well, can, all sing, we can all sing happy birthday differently, but the words have to be clear, and that timing has to be clear to that lovely sound. But uh, the actual pitch of our voices can all change. Right, and that's that's a really important point you brought up. And seg segueing into another question, I'm kind of like jumping around here, but um, you mentioned adjudicating and like the clarity when it comes to like perception of how an adjudicator views the, the couple on the dance floor. Now, what are some differences between uh, adjudicating, adjudicating dance floor competitions and adjudicating TV dancing? Oh, completely different, completely different, two different worlds. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I'd like to state quite clearly, I love to adjudicate. Mm -hmm. I love it. Whether it is a dance competition 
UK, international, British Open, World Championship, European. I love adjudicating competitions. And then I go into the TV show Dancing with the Stars. I am the head judge on that. And I love that. But they're completely different. Mm -hmm. So the world of ballroom dancing, it's all the couples get ready. They're all excited to go out there and to perform, be it in, you know, really historical places, i.e. Blackpool, the International at the Royal Albert Hall, the World Championship. And, and I get excited getting ready too. Mm -hmm. I want to look my best. And then, of course, the couples are hearing the same music that I'm hearing. So we're all hearing this music, the energy, the atmosphere of the room is all there. So for me, I stand out there with the pen in my hand. And it's like, it's like selecting in a way, it's like selecting jewelry. You're looking for those special pieces, the one that shines the most, you know, the one that has more depth to it. And that's what I love. And I, I love the challenge of me standing out there. If you watch me judge, you know, I'll be moving. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah, that comes back. You know, I, I've got this movement in my body because I'm very present. I'm very in the moment. Now, when I jump over and I change my hat and I go into the head judge on Dancing with the Stars, mm -hmm. it's an entertainment show. Right. It's an entertainment show with dancing inside of it. Mm -hmm. So there is a small percentage where I am looking for, example, the Foxtrot to have slow, quick, quick. Mm -hmm. A lovely heel lead for the man, lovely rolling through the feet of the lady. But I'm also looking for the character of the dance, the musicality, the position that they can have. And then through that dance, that lovely entertainment value of, you know, they may open out and do a little bit of a jazz or whatever it is that they choose to do. So, uh, yeah, the, they're, they're different worlds. And I'm very, very aware that I wear different hats in them. Yeah, that's a very brilliant explanation. I love the, the, the use of the term different hats because we actually have that same, our coach, Katrina Volgan, she uses the same, the same phrasing. She says, like, when you're at school, you have one hat. When you're at dance, you have another. And, you know, like, to not confuse them because clarity, again, going back to your point, is always needed. Yeah. It's the same when I go home after dancing, you know, mm -hmm. I put on a different hat, a more casual hat. You won't see me looking like this. Right. So, yeah, it's about, I think it's about being present. I, I, I don't think, I believe it's about being present. I'm very present. I know where I am right now with you. And I know later where I will be when I go out for dinner. Um, so it's about being present. Right. I agree. Very well said. Now, to wrap this up, Miss uh, Madam, I would like to ask you our final question. Now, in today's dancing world, there's many different... Uh, there's pros, there's cons, there's ups, there's down, different groups here, different groups there. Now, if you had a magic wand and could easily say abracadabra, yeah. what would the ideal dancing world look like? It's a big question, isn't it? The a million dollar question. <laughs> but, it, but it's not a difficult one. I think that everyone should be true to themselves, believe in themselves. I think that it should be more open. Everything should be open. I don't believe in all the different groups. I believe that the dancing world should be open and it's about choice. It's, you know, it's about choosing where you want to go and dance. So, you know, we have many different, you know, WDC, WDO, uh, WDSF. Mm -hmm. We have lots of choices. 
And I think that you should be free to choose where you want to go and dance, be it all of them. I would encourage all of them because <laughs> they're all different. And, you know, there are different venues, there's different music, there's different adjudicators, there's different competitors. So for me, my magic wand would be to open it out, be free, be free, and believe in yourself. Believe in yourself that you can go anywhere. And then again, you know, some people might say, oh, when I go there, I get a bad result. When I go there, I get a good result. Uh, to me, the result is how I feel. The bonus is if I have a trophy going home. But it's about me. It's all about experience. And I would like to encourage much more open mind, openness. Uh, be very aware of the, the power that you have within yourself. You know, you hold that ammunition inside of you to go out there and to perform to the best of your ability, wherever it may be, under whoever it is, I think. Beautifully said. I definitely agree. I think experience, intention, those lovely words we love to throw around, but we, we lose the meaning sometimes. And, and sometimes, like, it's it's beneficial to go back to, like, what they originally mean, right? Like, yeah, yeah. moment. Yeah. And to to allow yourself to dream however big you want to dream. If I can just say, I was, um, I was, uh, I think people, you may hear, oh, Lorraine Barry, oh, she's such a strong lady. Uh, be it a strong person, be it a strong dancer, and be it have it like a strong image. And I don't disagree with that. You have to be strong in the dancing. It's because I believe in myself so much. I believe I was never afraid. Bring it on. The more you want to knock me down, the more I'm going to come. And so what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So right. for me, it actually, I thank people who criticize me. And I don't mean criticize. I can take criticism once it's constructive. But it empowers me to actually correct it and be even better. And that's the goal to be the best that you can be inside because that's when you go to bed at night saying, I did it. I did it my way. I feel so good about it, either with the trophy or without the trophy. Mm -hmm. I Very well said. Fantastic. Awesome. awesome. Yes. Well, madam, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us here on Scalera Dance Sport. Uh, ever since we, I began dancing, I heard your name all the time and I've seen all the videos, your fantastic Foxtrot and that lovely dress. It is just phenomenal. So being able to sit here and speak with you and have this conversation is, of course, a great honor. So thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you so much for having me, and I've enjoyed our time together. Yes, thank you. Have a fantastic uh, day or the rest of your day in Ireland. What time is it in Ireland right now? It is coming up to 6 o'clock in the evening. I will be going out for dinner. And this weekend, I will be doing Dancing with Stars on Sunday. So it's we'll have a fantastic dinner, and I'll see you on TV. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a blessed day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. <laughs>